The following program does not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Reality Radio 101, its advertisers and sponsors, or its listening audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Urban Forestry Radio Show, here on Reality Radio 101. In this radio show and podcast, we learn about fruit trees, permaculture, arboriculture, and so much more. So if you love trees, and especially fruit trees, or if you're interested in living a more sustainable life, then this is the place for you. I'm your host, Susan Poisner of the Fruit Tree Care Training website, OrchardPeople.com. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner. To contact Susan live right now, send her an email in studio101 at gmail.com. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire Jack Frost nipping at your nose Yuletide carols being sung by a choir And folks dressed up like Eskimos Maybe you celebrate Christmas at this time of year Or maybe you celebrate winter solstice, Hanukkah, or Kwanzaa. No matter what you celebrate, that idea of eating hot roasted chestnuts on a cold winter day just feels good. So I thought this was a perfect time to talk in the show today about chestnuts and chestnut trees. Hey, most of us don't even realize that there are all sorts of chestnuts from different chestnut tree cultivars. Some are big, some are small. And the flavor and texture can be totally different for each type. Well, my first guest in the show today has probably chewed his way through thousands of chestnuts over the years. Alan Rosich is from Waterloo, Iowa, and he's part of Iowa's strong Bosnian community, which hosts a huge chestnut festival each year. Alan is going to tell me about it. Then later in the show, we'll explore more information about the history of chestnut trees here in North America, the types of cultivars available, and the kind of care that these trees need. We'll be talking to Dr. Sandy Anagnostakis of the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station. As always, I welcome your questions, comments, and stories on the show for either of my guests. So please scribble down this email in studio 101 at gmail.com and I'll do my best to include your comment in the live show today. We can even continue the conversation after the show on the Orchard People Facebook page. But first, let's party. 
On the line is Alan Rosich, who's involved in the annual Chestnut Festival in Iowa. Alan, how are you today? I am pretty good. You're pretty good. You had a nice holiday? Yes, we had a great holiday. Can you uh, tell me a little bit about yourself? Tell me, where did you grow up, and, and in what way were chestnuts part of your culture or tradition? Uh, I, I am originally from ex-Yugoslavia, today Bosnia and Herzegovina. And uh, our chestnut tradition go way back, as we have natural forests in Bosnia full of chestnuts. So every fall, we would uh, pretty much whole family get together, and we would go and pick up chestnuts through the forest. And then we would just uh, either roast them, boil them, or hold them for the winter days. So how, you know what, I believe that chestnuts are kind of notorious. I know that when I do buy them, you kind of have to make them right away, otherwise they they go bad. Um, How would you preserve them? Uh, yes, they go very easy moldy if if they're not stored uh, right. Uh, we in Bosnia there's two different we preserve it in the traps in the underground traps where the hole would be digged in in the ground and you would store them inside with the uh, apples and potatoes and usually they could hold up after three to four months. The temperatures are around forty fifty degrees whole time, so they usually don't mold. No, as fa- as bad as environment, you know. But also, we in in Bosnia we have the other way of we start uh, after we pick them up, we lay them on the sun for a couple of days, and we turn them twice daily, kind of on the sun, let them start drying, and then we store them under the roofs of our houses, pretty much, and they stay there for about three, four months till they come. Uh, chestnuts and just open it. The, the shell would be so crackly and dry, you would just push them and you could just like break them right away with your hand without any much force. And then those those chestnuts would be kind of like a yellow golden nugget and you would just use them to boil them. You can use them as a mashed potato or just eat them as they are when they're boiled. That's interesting. On, uh, yes, and those chestnuts could be stored for probably five, six years before they start losing their flavor and nutrition. I mean, my father told me about that, and that's his favorite way of eating chestnuts, I mean, to dry them and then boil them sometime next year. So uh, I, I myself, I rather love them uh, fire roasted or oven baked, you know, but, you know. <laughs> Personal preference. preference. Um, Alan, just to clarify, when you, um, you know, back in the old country, when you would dry uh, the chestnuts, you would dry them in their in their shell. You don't have to take yes, them out of the shell. shell. Correct. Oh, in their shell, they will be dried in their shell first few days because you will keep them on the sun, you know, and turn them over uh, usually three, four days on the sun kind of to kill the ozai mold and all bacteria. And then while they're still in the shell, we'll restore them under the roofs where it's really dry, you know, and they would completely dry out. I mean, where there was like absolutely no moisture. So they would just be like hard rock, but really light. I mean. So tell me, you came to North America. Um, I yeah. think you told me in 1997, is that correct? Correct, correct. 
And then when did the Chestnut Festival start and what was the motivation for having a, an annual Chestnut Festival? Well, uh, when we came in 97, probably in the next few years, we did not know that. I mean, our Bosnian love chestnuts and we have a community of like probably seven, five to 7,000 people here in Waterloo. I mean, we could not find chestnuts and the stores that would order a small quantity, they could not sell enough. And uh, over the year, we find out that southern part of Iowa, kind of Quad Cities, between Quad City, Davenport, and uh, Iowa City, there's a natural forest of chestnuts on some uh, planted Chinese forests lately, you know. And after we find, found that out, uh, that's when the people started kind of globally organizing. We always had a small kind of get-together in the fall for, like, fast chestnut sauce. But then uh, probably last eight, nine years, we, st- each, uh, we started organizing each year a bigger and bigger chestnut festival, trying to bring more people to try the chestnuts at first, because a lot of people never even try the chestnuts. You know, many people, it's kind of first time they eat chestnuts, it's like, mm, I never eat anything like it. Mm-hmm. It's not like any other nut. Yeah, it's amazing that it isn't. It really is a very meaty kind of nut. Um, yes, it's very different. It's very different, <laughs> but delicious. It's more like a potato than a nut. <laughs> um, so, okay, you started the festival. Now, what, is the festival only for the Bosnian community, or did you open no, it up to the public? Actually, the festival is for everybody. We, we try to invite uh, as many people as we can, American or now other people from everywhere else to try and uh, a lot of Asians enjoy uh, chestnuts too. We have a, a big community of people from South Asia, from Burma, and Thailand, and they really enjoy the chestnuts too. So they usually come to to these festivals too. And I mean, a lot of time people never heard of chestnuts, and especially of chestnut festival. I mean, it's new, and we are trying kind of to spread it. I mean, like now, like I said, we have it in Waterloo, uh, Iowa, Des Moines, Iowa, and Chicago, Illinois. We switch it kind of every year so people can get kind of closer, don't have to drive too far away every every year, you know. Yeah, that must be, I would love to go one day. That'll be so much fun. Now, okay, so you're giving out free roasted chestnuts, I understand. Yes. What else yes, happens? Is there music? Is there yes, entertainment? Yes, we have a live Bosnian music that is playing whole time usually. We also have a Bosnian meals, like a Bosnian... Uh, different Bosnian soups on uh, some Bosnian meats and uh, dry sausages. Usually everything is free. Everything is donated by the uh, companies here in town or by the members of community, you know. So they usually try to use that money just to make a bigger and bigger fest. And so far we did have every every time was better and better or more people showed up so and how we so in recent years how many people showed up for your festival this year we did not have too many because we had a way before that we had a huge flooding here in midwest on the the main parts that we're supposed to have at uh, god flooded so we got moved in the center of the city and kind of was surprised for everybody you know what's happening suddenly in a town you know big festival loud music you know, a lot of cars coming and grills going on. A lot of time, people uh, came just to check it out, and they didn't even realize that everything is free. And a lot of Americans really enjoyed it too. It was uh, the, the camp this year, but uh, last time we had probably around five thousand people. 
wow. in the Waterloo here. That was like three years ago. And this time we had over, around 2,500 people for the whole day coming and going. That sounds like fun. So I it need I, I need to ask you some advice because you are obviously a, a chestnut cooking expert, which I am not. <laughs> and, you know, when me, with me, it's hit and miss whether they work out in the end. Um, is there a secret, secret to roasting chestnuts? Is it the type of chestnut you buy? Is it the, the how you how you roast them in the oven what's the secret hmm. uh, in the oven I, I I love them in the roasting them in the oven it's kind of the easiest for me uh, you do have to cut the chestnuts a little bit with a knife the skin kind of uh, damage it otherwise they will blow up the steam inside while they cook they will uh, grow and blow up that's what happened a few times and I recommended to few people to buy chestnuts and they took it home I mean, they never knew that they were supposed to cut them. They would put them in the oven, or would ju- they would just make a huge mess. But, yes, you have to cut each chestnut with a knife, just make a small X on the top of it, and then you just put them in the oven. Uh, I usually do it through 380 degrees for 20 to 25 minutes, depends on the size. If they're larger, I leave them a couple minutes longer. If they're smaller chestnuts, I leave them a couple minutes less. But uh, on the end... Uh, after these 20, 25 minutes, I turn the broiler on for about three minutes and just leave them under the door broiler with open door. That way, the, the shell will kind of blacken and be really easy to peel, but then that inside still will be nice and soft. Oh, that's a good secret. And I think that is the easy, that is the kind of easier ways to roast them. The other ways would be, another easy way is just to boil it. And you just put them in the water and boil them for about an hour, hour and a half, and then you can peel them with a knife, too. Hmm. I mean, the boiling method is easier. It tastes totally different as the roasted one. You know, it tastes more like a boiled sweet potato huh. kind of taste when you boil them. Amazing. Yeah. Alan, we like to ro- mm, sorry, yeah. go ahead. No, no. We also like to roast them on the open fire, like a lot of songs say, and that's how we do it on the festival. We have uh, special grills with the holes, and we just have an open fire, and that way you don't have to cut them because the fire just burns the shell, and so they have no time to steam and to explode. I mean, so mm-hmm. it's roasted fire is the way, but you do have to do it outside. I mean, um, Alan, I just got an email from a listener called Adam. I don't know where Adam's okay. from, but he says, Hi, Susan. Merry Christmas. I have been to the festival. Amazing, he says. What a very cool event. Everyone should go. Thanks, Adam. So that's nice. You know, one of the listeners has been. We, like I said, uh, it, it, people never heard of it. First, of, first, people don't hear a lot about Chestnut, especially about Chestnut Festival, you know. Or, it is really some kind of different experience, you know. To try them, to taste them, to taste different kind of food and hear the music. You know, it's 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 really, I mean, if we didn't have a, such a good turnout every year after year, we probably wouldn't do it. But uh, turnout is bigger and bigger. And uh, to be honest, like, that makes everybody happy. Like, because everybody who works, and they're all volunteers. They're always, you know, people who come and they take their time off the work and everything to set up everything and to help during the festivals. It's funny, Adam got back to us. He is listening from Toronto, so he doesn't even live near you guys. Toronto, Canada. Now, okay, 
people listening to this show may say, I want to go next fall to the festival. How do I how do I find out when it is and where to go? Is there more information online? How can they get more information? Well, like I said, the um, festival is every October. It's the end of October every year. Uh, next year will be in Des Moines, Iowa, located. So it's between October 20th and 28th. Just depends how the weekend falls on it. And uh, you can check it under. Uh, it's called the uh, Castaneda. It's called the Chestnut Festival on Bosnian. Uh, and they usually have a Facebook page built up for the coming year or, or just to add uh, people, you know, to see what people would like to do more, what would people like to see, and then they try to organize that. I mean, this year we we had a small Facebook page. You saw it. There were not much on it because it's run by the all the gentlemen, you know, he don't know too much about like the technique on the social media today but he tried to do his best with uploading pictures and answering questions to it um you know what what we can do is alan i would love it if you email me in september or august and as soon as you know the date and the location any information i can put it on orchardpeople.com i can write yes, a little I can do blog that for sure. and we can make sure that uh, the listeners who want to go will find a way to get there i certainly would love to get there one year i hope that that will happen one day um, now, you were mentioning music, and in a minute we're going to hear some music that's uh, written and performed by a friend of yours. So yes. can you tell us a little bit about him and, and about the music oh, we're going to hear? He's my friend from today I was born, actually. He's my uh, godfather originally, so I know him my probably my 40 years. Uh, we worked together at Refugee war refugee uh, from Bosnia in Germany before we came here to the United States. Uh, he stayed in New York. We moved to Iowa. He's a great, great, great artist. He does all kind of uh, Mediterranean music from Spanish, Greek to Italian, Bosnian. He speaks uh, several languages. Um, his friend, the uh, surgeon, uh, he came from uh, Serbia a few years ago and joined them. And they now have the band that they uh, perform in New York City on surrounding area over the weekends. I mean, he plays all kind of from the uh, and, folk and music to the rock music from the Balkan Peninsula. And what's his band name? Vukan uh, and Sergian. Okay. Uh, you can find them on YouTube. Uh, they have their channel. They have some really nice music. So hopefully, uh, Gary in the studio, hopefully af right after I say goodbye to you, maybe Gary will play it. We can hear Perfect. a little bit of the song because I really enjoyed listening to it on YouTube, and yeah, I thank him. He, he played on my wedding, and he traveled from New York all the way to Iowa just to play for my wedding for one day. It was the greatest wedding music I ever had, so I mean, I could even imagine. Uh, I enjoyed listening to it a lot, so I'm glad to share it. And Alan, thank you so much for coming on the show. In the second half of the show, we're going to be talking a little bit more about uh, chestnut trees. We're going to be talking about growing them and cultivars. But I so appreciate having this chat with you today. I've been looking forward to it oh, a long thank time. Thank you. So thanks thank you so very much. much Susan. Okay, you take care. Listen to the end of the show if you can. And uh, goodbye for now. Thank you. Bye-bye, guys. Bye. Okay, maybe we'll get a bit of that music now. Let's have a listen. Oh, the 
Coming up, we'll hear a word from our sponsors, and then we'll learn more about the sad history of chestnut trees here in North America. We'll also learn about chestnut tree cultivars and the secret of how to grow these trees successfully. Now, get ready to send in your questions to instudio101 at gmail.com. You're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show. 101. I'm Susan Poisner, and we'll be back after this short break. Hi everyone, it's Susan Poisner from OrchardPeople.com. The holidays are here and I want to celebrate with you. Winter is a great time to polish up our fruit tree care skills to get ready for the year to come. So if you need to learn fruit tree pruning, pest and disease prevention and more, then I have a gift for you. Until December 31st, I'm offering 25% off the cost of my online fruit tree care training. It's a great gift for you or for anyone you love. Claim your 25% discount before December 31st, 2016. Go to orchardpeople.com workshops and use the discount code HOLIDAY16. Happy holiday, everyone! Hi, I'm Mark Cullen with some news about a wonderful lineup of garden supplies and garden tools that will absolutely knock your gardening socks off. They're called Mark's Choice, and they're exclusive to home hardware, 1,100 stores coast to coast to coast. Mark's Choice features great quality products that will not only last years, but in some cases will last a lifetime. Look for my various garden gloves, Stainless steel garden tools, stainless steel digging tools, my new garden backhoe, and many, many others. As a matter of fact, there's over 160 different products in the Mark's Choice lineup. I'd love you to try them all, but start by sampling one that appeals to you. Drop by your local home hardware, have a look at the Mark's Choice lineup of tools and garden supplies, including my line of garden soils, and decide for yourself. Great quality lasting quality, and a great gardening experience. That's what I strive for with Mark's Choice. Look for it at Home Hardware. The following program does not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Reality Radio 101, its advertisers and sponsors, or its listening audience. Listener discretion is strongly advised.
Welcome back to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101. To contact Susan now live, email her in studio101 at gmail.com. And now, right back to your host, Susan Poisner. You're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. I'm Susan Poisner, and in today's show, we've been talking about roasting chestnuts in an annual chestnut festival in Iowa. But you know, many Urban Forestry Radio Show listeners, they like growing things. And some of us might be interested in planting a chestnut tree on our properties, or maybe in a community orchard project in a local park. Now, I think that's a great idea. But before you rush off to the garden center to buy a tree, there's a lot to think about. Planting chestnut trees is like planting any tree. You absolutely need to do your research first. So, in this part of the show, I've invited Dr. Sandra Onognostakis. We call her Dr. Sandy. She's famous for being Dr. Sandy. And she has spent years working to breed better and more disease-resistant chestnut trees at the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station. Dr. Sandy works at the Department of Plant Pathology and Ecology, and her expertise is fungus a major bad guy when it comes to chestnut trees. She's also a past president and current board member of the Northern Nut Growers Association. So, I think Dr. Sandy is on the line. Happy holidays. Are you there? Yes, I'm here. Thank you very much. (laughs) Did you have a wonderful holiday? I did. I had a great time with my daughter and her family. Oh, that sounds so nice. So, yes, did you hear the first part of the show when we chatted with Alan about the Chestnut Festival? Uh, yes, I did. I'm, I made a couple of notes about some of his questions, if you would like me to elaborate on them. For sure. Um, one of the things that, that he was talking about was storage. And the big problem, of course, is that when uh, grocery stores get in chestnuts from Europe, they tend to put them out dry in a bag, and under those conditions, the nuts are pretty much useless after a few days. So the chestnut growers of America have been trying very hard to convince grocery store people that chestnuts should be treated like tomatoes. They really have to be refrigerated, and they can't be allowed to dry out. But uh, the uh, alternative to dealing with dried-out chestnuts from a store is to buy local. And there are lots and lots of chestnut growers in the United States, and uh, the list is available online. People can simply look at chestnutgrowers.org, O-R-G, to get a list of all of the growers that are uh, current with this organization. And I see that there are seven different growers listed in Iowa. So uh, Alan could expand his sources of chestnut by 
contacting some of those people. It's interesting because when I spoke to Alan before the show, he was talking. They they order a lot of chestnuts because it's for the festival, and they mm-hmm. have they go directly to the growers. I'm so glad you addressed that because I was the one who said basically I've had such bad luck with roasting chestnuts. But I think it's for the very reason that you mentioned. I'm getting them. They're sitting outside in in the sun, basically, outside my local um, my local fruit and veg store. So that makes a lot of sense. I wonder if your list, uh, ch- chestnutgrowers.org, has any Canadian producers or growers in there. I don't think there are any, but uh, certainly there are some growers in Canada. <clears throat> I can't I can't think of any right offhand. But uh, there, there are lots of growers. What you need to do is buy local, or if you want to order online, there are a number of these places that will ship chestnuts to you. The uh, Michigan Chestnut Co-op has a, a thriving business in <clears throat> not only fresh chestnuts, but many chestnut products. Mm, That sounds wonderful. Well, let's talk a little bit about the history of chestnut trees here in North America. And uh, I don't know, maybe many people, many listeners are like me. I know that, you know, there were American chestnut trees and that there aren't so much anymore. Can you tell us briefly what is it that's happened to the American chestnut tree? Sure. Um, American chestnuts, which were native up and down the East Coast and over about as far as the the middle of the country, were at one time a fairly important timber tree. They grew to about 80 feet tall and were uh, very straight and therefore were prized for lumber and uh, were used by a lot of woodworking people. And in Connecticut, they were were burned to make charcoal for... um, all of the uh, metal producers in in the state. But American chestnut trees were unfortunately very susceptible to a fungus disease and to another disease, which is a root disease. used to be called a fungus, but people have decided that it's, it's not a fungus. So we have two major diseases that came in in the 1800s probably from Asia, uh, and those um, diseases essentially wiped out the major uh, forests of American chestnut, but didn't completely eliminate the trees because the, uh, the root disease certainly kills them totally. That's more prominent in the South because that organism doesn't overwinter it's it's not really much of a problem oh north of about new jersey but the fungus disease which is throughout the range kills the tops of the trees down to the ground and then they sprout again so though american chestnuts have been seriously depleted in the southern u.s in the northern part of the range, they continue to die back to the ground and then sprout again from the base. So it sounds like what's left of the American chestnut tree is sort of like chestnut shrubs. That's, 
That's about right. That's what you get. Do they have, do they get old enough to produce any nuts? Uh, they do occasionally. Chestnuts, American chestnuts, don't usually start producing nuts until they're about 10 or 12 years old. So if the um, shrubs are able to grow that long before they get blight and die back again, then they might produce nuts one or two times, one or two years in a row. Now, the, the, the nuts, of when you and I chatted earlier, they were never a delicacy for humans, I guess. Well, they certainly were in the South, where they were an important source of, of food. Uh, people in the Appalachian Mountains, for instance, relied on them, uh, as, of course, did lots of uh, animals and birds that were eating the chestnuts. But when the people in the Northeast talked about chestnuts and chestnuts roasting on the corners in New York City, those were usually European chestnuts that had been initially brought over in the 1700s. Uh, for instance, Thomas Jefferson is supposed to have grafted European chestnuts onto some American chestnut stumps in 1773. So European chestnuts have been in this country for a long time. And those nuts are much larger than American chestnuts. So uh, the people who were able to get European chestnuts certainly would, would buy those. If you, if you had to stuff a turkey and you needed uh, 30 American chestnuts and you could get by with 10 Europeans, uh, there's an obvious choice there. So the European are definitely a much bigger nut. They're a much larger nut. Uh, the flavor is different. The, the European chestnuts are uh, a little more like a potato in, in texture, and um, uh, they're certainly good. They're just uh, a different kind of, of uh, nut that uh, some people like, uh, some people prefer. And that's, that's something that's definitely uh, taken into consideration by the, by the growers, because if you're growing nuts, you have to know your market. You have to know whether the people in your area would prefer the small, dense nuts or large, flowery nuts like, like the Europeans or uh, nuts of the kind that you find in Japan. And all of the species, the seven or eight species of chestnuts, have different characteristics. Interesting. As you mentioned, the, the Japanese uh, chestnut trees, so how would that compare to the European or to the, the native North American chestnut trees in terms of the taste of the chestnuts and sizes and stuff? Well, uh, Japanese chestnuts first came into the United States in 1876, and the, uh, the people growing them in the Northeast primarily were hybridizing them with Americans and with Europeans to get nuts that would peel more easily because the Japanese chestnuts are harder to peel even after they've been cooked. So in order to get nuts that peeled better, people made hybrids, and some of those, some of those early hybrids were very successful. There was one called Boone that... Uh, was uh, 
selected and and grown for a long time. Um, starting, let's see, Boone was in. Oh, I can't remember. Sometime in the uh, in the late 1800s um, was developed uh, and uh, sold uh, as a cultivar that is, as a grafted tree, all over the eastern United States. Um, I have a question from a listener here. Cliff says, what do most growers grow? Which type? So is there one or two cultivars that's really popular across the board? Well, it's important to, to realize, first of all, that different, kind, different species of chestnuts grow in different areas. If you're growing chestnuts on the West Coast, most of those growers have Japanese-European hybrids. Those are the ones that succeed best under those conditions in California. In the Midwest, there are a lot of people growing Chinese chestnuts. In the Northeast, there's a whole variety of hybrids that have been produced many of them from the Connecticut Experiment Station, hybrids that are a combination of Japanese, Chinese, European, and American, and selected for nut size and flavor. Uh, People in the South, where they have to worry about the root disease on chestnuts, are growing primarily Asian trees or Asian hybrids that will resist that organism. So depending on where you are, if you're looking for local chestnuts, you will find different kinds of hybrids and different species. And within those, there are, of course, cultivars, which are clones that are grown and uh, uh, sold in different parts of the country. Um, We've got another email from a listener, Elise, um, from Orlando, Florida. She writes, hello, Susan and Dr. Sandra. I love all forms of chestnuts and chestnut recipes. My family thinks that I am half squirrel. Thanks for all the information on chestnuts. Very informative. So thank you so much, Elise, for writing that. Um, In a minute, we're just we're going to listen to uh, a message from our sponsors in a minute. But just briefly, you, I know you have spent all, much of your career working on breeding different types and cultivars of, of chestnut trees. What, are, what is your goal in doing this breeding? What is it that you are looking to create? Well, uh, the experiment station has a long history in breeding chestnut trees, both orchard and timber trees, that would be resistant to blight disease and other problems. But in addition we've been trying to find trees that produce large nutritious nuts which keep well, which store well, and ideally which start to fruit early. That is, earlier than Americans, which take 10 or 12 years. And have you been successful? Are there any cultivars that you have uh, launched yet into the market? I know these things are very slow to develop, but... Uh, Yes, well, uh, yes, in fact... The Experiment Station released Sleeping Giant, uh, a cultivar called Sleeping Giant, sometime in the 60s. Uh, We have Little Giant, which is a dwarf tree. There are uh, a number of others that 
we have uh, given out to growers, and I've been continuing to make selections using some of the the major cultivars, like cultivar Colossal, which is a Japanese-European hybrid. Um, I've been crossing that with some of our trees that have uh, exceptionally good flavor, and then testing the offspring for the nutrients in the nuts. Nice. Well, in just a few seconds, we're going to hear from the show sponsors, but I I would love to get into more detail after our little commercial break about chestnut cultivars, how to care for them. I have lots of listener questions for you as well. So Dr. Sandy, can you hold on the line for just a minute? Certainly. Okay, thanks so much. You're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. I'm Susan Poisner, and we'll be back after this short break. that one of the best ways to ensure organic fruit tree growing success is to order the right tree for your unique conditions? You'll get the widest selection of cultivars from a specialist fruit tree nursery where you can find heirloom trees, disease-resistant varieties, and more. To download a free list of fruit tree nurseries in Canada and the United States, go to orchardpeople.com slash buy fruit trees. That's B-U-Y-Fruit-Trees. Enjoy the list and your new fruit tree. And learn more about how to care for your tree by signing up for my free monthly newsletter at orchardpeople.com. Welcome back to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101. To contact Susan live right now, send her an email in studio101 at gmail.com. And now, right back to your host, Susan Poisner. I'm Susan Poisner, and you're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show, a program where we learn all about fruit trees, food forests, permaculture, arboriculture, and lots more. Thanks so much for tuning in. So today, to celebrate the winter season, we are talking about chestnuts and chestnut trees, a favorite treat at this time of the year. And I've been speaking to Dr. Sandy Anagnostakis of the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station. And she's been breeding chestnut trees for many years. So if you have any questions for Dr. Sandy or even any chestnut stories to share, please do email us at instudio101 at gmail.com. Okay, so Dr. Sandy, you're still on the line, right? Yes, I'm still here. So uh, back to Cliff, a listener who has written in another question. And he asks 
Um, are the, other than the eating the nuts themselves, are there an increasing number of products like that are made with I don't know uh, chestnut flour, uh, that kind well, of thing? Yes, absolutely. Many of the growers are now selling not only chestnut flour. There's uh, chestnut chips, which are freeze dried little uh, pieces of chestnut that you can keep for a long time and then if you want a few in your soup you just take a handful to add no no fuss no peeling um that many, sounds great many uh, different kinds of uh, food products are being produced and in michigan they now have chestnut beer which i've not tasted yet but one of my friends tells me is very good um, that sounds amazing. That sounds really useful. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, we have a message from Aaron in Maine, USA. So Aaron says, great topic. Here in the Northeast, a problem in chestnuts is that some Chinese hybrids don't drop their leaves Excuse me. <coughs> early enough in the fall and that the branches break under early wet snows. So could Dr. Sandy recommend some good nut cultivars for the Northeast that don't have this problem? Well, um, I, I happen to think that the Japanese cultivars, or the ones that are hybrids with Japanese rather than Chinese, seem to do a little better in the Northeast, um, whereas the Chinese do better in the Midwest and possibly in the South. So that would be the first thing I'd look for, would be some of the cultivars that have uh, Japanese as their source of resistance. But the other thing to keep in mind is that if you're very far north, then winter temperatures are going to be a big problem for growing grafted cultivars. Chestnuts won't root from cuttings, so in order to propagate a cultivar, which is by definition, a clone, they have to be grafted. And that graft union often will uh, not survive very low winter temperatures. In fact, in northern Connecticut, one of our growers has had a lot of trouble keeping grafted trees alive. So under those conditions, rather than growing cultivars, probably planting selected seedlings would be wiser. Hmm, interesting idea. I should ask you, uh, I know that I've taken quite, uh, made an effort to put together a list of fruit tree nurseries, but I'm sure people listening to this show, I have some nut tree nurseries, but uh, do you have a list available or do you know of, how can people find a great place to order um, a nut tree that will be great for their zone and for their con their needs? Well, I, I think the most, uh, the best list <laughs> is one I mentioned earlier, uh, www.chestnutgrowers.org. So they'll, they'll sell the trees as well as the nuts. Those are, are people uh, who have chestnut orchards, and many of them sell trees as well as nuts, yes. That's great. Okay, so we have an email from Jeff uh, from Iowa. Has there been any news about the potential resistant native tree found in Maine, last year <laughs> yes um, it's it's um, it's a common misconception that when a single tree is found surviving someplace that it must have resistance to blight but 
Actually, more properly, one should call those trees blight-free because if someone has planted a tree, an American or a European, both of which are susceptible to blight, if they're planted outside the native range where they're not exposed to blight, then they will survive pretty well if the soil and temperature are, are adequate. So, uh, yes, the tree in Maine was blight-free. Um, I don't expect that anyone will ever find a truly blight-resistant American chestnut or even a European, but uh, blight-free turn up every so often. Hmm, interesting. But even, so what you're saying is we may get <clears throat> a resistant, a disease-resistant tree, but it will probably be a hybrid. You really don't think there will be a seedling that will be born somewhere that will absolutely never get get these fungal diseases wherever you plant it. There's no such thing. Well, that's, yes, that's my opinion. I think uh, there certainly are both European and American trees that have a little more resistance than you find in uh, the average trees. But I don't think that's going to produce a, a tree that will be truly blight resistant. Okay, so now Nancy in London, uh -huh. London, Ontario. So she writes, in fall 2015, I went looking for chestnuts and a large chestnut farmer told me that there was an infestation of worms in the nuts. And he could not guarantee the nuts I bought from him. He said they would, leave, they, uh, they would leave them a few months to determine which of the nuts were affected, and they would sell those for a proper price. He says, uh, I think he said the infestation would only get worse. So what is this worm problem? Uh, uh, well, this is the bane of, of almost all chestnut growers. The problem is that there are two species of weevils, in the United States, and those weevils, um, I think most people know what a boll weevil looks like. It's a little creature with a very long nose. Those two species of weevils lay their eggs in, uh, into the burr, into the nuts, and the, uh, the eggs then are present in the nuts as they mature. Now, as far as the weevil is concerned, the, the process is that those nuts um, sit on the tree. When they are ripe, the burrs open, the nuts fall to the ground, the eggs hatch inside the nut, and the, um, the egg turns into a little larva, uh, a little white worm, which eats its way out of the nut, goes down into the soil, and overwinters and comes out the next year as a weevil. So those little white worms are present in almost all of the places where people grow chestnuts and have to be dealt with. Mm. The, um, the easiest way, well, the method I use, is to harvest the nuts as soon as they're ripe, parboil them, dry them off, and put them in a plastic bag in the freezer. And in this way, I'm, I'm keeping the larvae from developing, and uh, the nuts are fine and uh, will keep for a long time under those conditions. And there so are some growers, like Empire Chestnut Company, which has uh, 
a very good system of heat treating the nuts. They can be collected and heated to 120 degrees Fahrenheit for 20 minutes and then cool down, and that will also kill the eggs. And those nuts then can be refrigerated and kept fairly uh, easily for a long time. So actually, essentially, if, if you are eating uh, nuts treated in that way, you're eating the little eggs, a little extra protein in your nut. It's a little <laughs> extra protein. <laughs> That's fine. Okay, we have a question from Russ, who's in New England. So he has three questions. They're all related. Mm-hmm. Um, any differences in planting and care techniques for American versus other species of chestnut tree? Part two is, my impression is that any species of Castanea would not be a good choice for a street tree due to the prickly burrs, which could possibly hurt people, pets, bike tires, etc. Am I right or wrong on that assessment? And part three is, how many trees should be planted and in what proximity to ensure good cross-pollination? Okay, well, let's start with the first one. Uh, Differences in planting. Uh, If you're planting... If you're planting American chestnut trees, I'm assuming that you're planting them someplace outside of the native range where there's no chestnut blight disease. In that case, you want timber trees, so you could plant them relatively close together in rows as people plant pine trees in plantations. But if you're planting an orchard, uh, they will be hybrids. They won't be tall and straight. They'll be short, spreading trees, and the best way to plant them is about 30 feet apart. I think um, that many people are starting out with seedlings, planting them a little uh, more closely than that, and then selecting the ones that that are vigorous and grafting cultivars on top of them. That's uh, one way of starting an orchard. But uh, if you're buying grafted trees, then they should be planted about 30 feet apart. And as far as planting them as street trees, I always, I always tell people, no, they're not street trees, and you don't want one in your backyard. The, uh, the burrs are, have, have very sharp spines. I just imagine small boys throwing them at each other. But uh, the other problem with chestnut trees around houses is that the flowers smell really awful, and I don't think many people would want them uh, very close to their houses. Well, actually, I'm really glad you mentioned that because I know that uh, many of the listeners are like me. We we want to plant everything, right? And so... Um, I think it's just, I think that's really good advice. You think very carefully where you're going to plant your chestnut, fruiting chestnut tree, and making sure, I think that um, Russ's question is such a good one about a street tree, and, and your answer is really good. Think of the prickly burrs, and think of the size of the tree, and just find an appropriate location. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Even community orchards, I mean, I'm not sure, would it be a great choice? I guess if they have a far corner where... You know, would you think it would be a good choice for a, a community orchard somewhere? I think that would be fine if it was it was not right in the middle of a, a housing development. 
Okay, perfect. Now, we do have a couple more questions, but it's okay for us to go a couple of minutes over time. So I'm just going to go do two more questions here. Okay. Um, And that's Eric from Colorado. And he says, I understand chestnut trees can be hard to transplant. Any suggestions for hacks to avoid damaging tap roots? I was thinking about sewing them cardboard carpet tubes. Okay. Um, <clears throat> chestnuts make tap roots. So if you're intending to start them from the nuts, the easiest way is to either have something like, uh, I, I like his idea of cardboard carpet tubes. I've actually purchased um, tubes, tube-like plastic pots from uh, a commercial source, and I've used those. But the easiest way to, to have them growing in your greenhouse in the early spring is to plant them uh, in your, your potting mix in a container that's open on the bottom and sitting on um, a screened uh, device. Let's see. I think it's called hardware cloth. It's um, uh, a mesh that's not terribly dense. And I have that nailed into a frame so that the pots are sitting on that. When the roots grow out the bottom, they grow through this hardware cloth into the open air, and they're pruned off. Hmm. Uh, By growing them this way, you end up with a very dense, fibrous root system, which transplants quite well. Um, It's a system that... uh, I've, I've recommended to a number of people, and they've adapted it. But the other thing I, I want to make sure people know about is that if you're then planting your trees outdoors, you will have to remember that the nut, which is still attached to the root system, needs to be removed. If you leave that nut on the root of the tree when you plant it out, you'll come back in a couple of days and find that all of the creatures of the forest have discovered them and pulled them up to get to the nuts. And that's a mistake I made about 50 years ago, and I learned very quickly that that was, that was important. So it's a mistake you never made again. That's right. It's funny because the last question I have is from Pam. She doesn't say where she's from, but she was responding to Eric's question. She said, I grew chestnut trees in drink cups and transplanted them out with no problem until the gophers discovered them, and then it was game over. <laughs> yes, yes. There, mm. there are uh, directions on our website that I've, I've written up <clears throat> that people can look at for starting chestnuts from seeds, uh, for growing chestnut trees, and um, there's information about chestnuts as a timber tree and as an orchard tree. So I'd suggest that people who want that kind of information go to ct.gov, that's Connecticut government, ct.gov slash C-A-E-S for Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station. And once you're on the website, ct.gov slash c-a-e-s, up in the right-hand corner, it says search. And if you type in chestnuts, you'll find all of my fact sheets 
about how to grow chestnuts from nuts, how to deal with them in the orchard, and some information about the trees themselves. Oh, that would be fantastic to get that link onto our Facebook, uh, on the Orchard People Facebook page. We have a posting where we talk about this show and there's room for discussion. So, Dr. Sandy, would you be okay putting that link right onto the discussion? Absolutely. And if there's any other questions, can people post them and you'll give them a little answer on that page? So folks who are listening, sadly, this this show has uh, come to a, the end, believe it or not. This show always goes so quickly. It's kind of crazy. But anyways, uh-huh. go, go to the Orchard People Facebook page and, you know, search under episode 16 and you'll find this, the posting, and you can ask further questions. We can continue the conversation. But in the meantime, Dr. Sandy, thank you so much for coming on the show today. You're very welcome. I'm wishing you a wonderful new year, lots of great research, lots of great breeding breeding for your trees. And um, I hope we'll speak to you again one day. That'd be fine. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. So for the listeners, remember to go to Orchard People's Facebook page, search for Urban Forestry Radio, and you'll find the post about chestnuts. And you can share your questions and comments. But for now, the Urban Forestry Radio Show has come to an end, and I really appreciate both of my guests coming on the show today. We have lots more great interviews coming up next month, so be sure to tune in again. The Urban Forestry Radio Show runs on the last Tuesday of every month at 1 p.m. Eastern on RealityRadio101.com. Now, if you missed part of the show, you want to listen back, just go to OrchardPeople.com slash network. And while you're there, you can listen to the podcast, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter, which is packed with great information about fruit trees, forest gardens, permaculture, and more. And folks, did you enjoy the show? I really hope you did. And I would love it if you like the show and if you like the work we do, go to Facebook, to Orchard People's Facebook page, and like us. You can also follow me on Twitter, and my Twitter address is at urbanfruittrees.com. You're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show. I'm Susan Poisner from the Fruit Tree Care Training website, orchardpeople.com, and I really look forward to seeing you on the radio again next month. Listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. To learn more about the show and to download the podcast where I cover lots more great topics, you can visit orchardpeople.com/podcast. This show is broadcast live on the last Tuesday of every month, and each time I have great new guests talking to me about fruit trees, food forests, and arboriculture. If you're interested in learning more about growing your own fruit trees or just about living a more sustainable life, go to orchardpeople.com and sign up for my information-packed monthly newsletter. If you like this show, please do like our Orchard People Facebook page. You can also follow me on Twitter at @urbanfruittrees. 
thank you so much for tuning in. It's been wonderful to have you as a listener, and I hope to see you again next time. Thank you for listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101.